Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Parties know who they're pre-selecting and they know what their beliefs are and they know what their hard lines are. And so if the political party starts drifting away from those beliefs or those hard lines or, you know, compromising in a way that that person that they have pre-selected wouldn't personally compromise on, then what do we expect to happen? Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You're on Australian Politics, and uh, I am Catherine Murphy. And delightfully with me in the pod cave this week are... Amy Ramakis. Josh Butler. Paul Carp, And Daniel Hurst. And, and we, we are answering your Oswald questions. questions. It's almost like we rehearsed. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> this is superb. Uh, if you are a newcomer to the podcast, we are doing an Ask Us Anything episode. Uh, I'm with the Canberra team, and we've basically... Uh, gone through a number of questions that uh, readers or listeners have submitted this week, either through email or on the socials. So Paul is going to lead off uh, with a question, first of all, from Ray Kingston. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Could you do a brief history of by-elections. <laughs> All <laughs> of them? Yeah, don't be alarmed, Paul. Going back to 1901, Paul. <laughs> okay, let, let Ray finish. How they typically play out uh, versus elections, so how are by-elections different to ordinary elections? Is two parachuted candidates normal for by-elections? Does the focus mean that these contests are uber-managed out of head office? Uh, it, can it be hard to motivate locals again? Uh, do they fav- favour third wheels or not? And obviously we're talking about Aston, which is the April Fool's by-election. So, Paul? Well, uh, Matthias Cormann uh, used a stat that the government hasn't won a seat off an opposition at a by-election for 100 years, and that stat is correct. The one time it happened was in 1920 when an MP called Hugh Barn was expelled and then uh, the government won a seat off the opposition. That doesn't mean that there can't be a swing uh, from the opposition to the government, and um, although that's that's rarer, but a seat like Aston on 2.8%, you know, maybe that's the time that this bucks this historical trend, especially early in the life of a new government when the, when the, the Prime Minister is still relatively popular. Um, yes, they are uh, stage managed within an inch of their life and, uh, yes, parachuting candidates is common, especially to put um, the candidate that contested the previous election uh, back in because they have good good name recognition and they might have, you know, shown their chops on the campaign trail. That's what Labor's done um, with Mary Doyle, who cut uh, Alan Tudge's margin by about 7%. And in terms of uh, how they usually go, 
government almost uh, picked up a seat off opposition at the Eden Monero by-election when Labor um, defended their seat. And um, in terms of the next election, no guarantees. Labor won the Longman and Braddon uh, by-elections before the 2019 election and then lost those seats, which helped Scott Morrison get re-elected. Third candidates, it really depends on the profile of of the area. Uh, This seat uh, is is a pretty straight, um, you know, Labor-Liberal contest at the last election and no independent candidate has put their their hand up for it this time. But, like, it, it depends if there's a large non-major party vote normally, you would mm. then you would expect more sort of chances and independents and single-issue candidates to throw in. Mm-hmm. Like we saw with Karen Phelps. Mm. Yes. With her yeah. election. Yeah, it doesn't sort of seem natural um, teal equivalent country Aston, but increasingly I just wonder whether any of the rules apply to any electoral contests anymore. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, I think the last election showed us there's no such thing as a safe seat for anybody anymore. Uh, and also demographics are shifting all over the place and the old truisms that the outer suburbs tend to be a little bit more conservative or, uh, you know, worried about aspirations and things aren't necessarily true anymore. And that's just because a lot of people who you'd usually consider to be city uh, dwellers are being, you know, moving out further to the suburbs because of the housing uh, crisis in, in prices. And that is actually changing our electoral map Mm -hmm. at the same time. So also I think uh, with Aston in particular, we have to take into account Peter Dutton's popularity or lack of popularity in Victoria in particular. It's a pretty hard state uh, for the opposition leader and I'm not sure if that much has shifted for him. Mm. agree with you, Amy. The other thing in the other direction, though, is Alan Tudge's personal... Mm. Yeah. uh, popularity or lack thereof at the last election. So whether there's a clean start with the fresh Liberal candidate that might sort of counteract that. Well, they just effect. balance each other out perfectly. Yeah, yeah. and also um, I, I totally, I totally agree with Amy that Victoria is not a great state uh, for Peter Dutton. Uh, it is a great or, or, state. Well, well, no, no, not a great state if you're Peter Dutton. But I think that Peter Dutton is less of a negative in Aston than he would be in Kuyong, for example. But anyway, we're going to have to wait and see how the old. Aston campaign turns out. Now, uh, Josh, you're up. Uh, from Joel Steiner, uh, has Prime Minister Albanese in his enthusiasm to bring the voice to fruition encountered more resistance than he expected? And uh, do you think he was sort of unprepared mm. for uh, for the kind of counter voices on this proposition? Uh, so by pushing ahead yeah. with uh, the various questions that are out there and the pushback that's out there, uh, be doing the voice and therefore reconciliation a big disservice. It is a really big question, Joel. Thank you for it. I I think they've got exactly the type and amount of opposition that they should have expected. Um, I think the only thing that's really been unexpected, I think, was, I guess, the, the fact that Peter Dutton sort of lobbed that first grenade on like the 5th of January or something while everyone was sort of still on school holidays and stuff. It's, it started very early. But I think the opposition they've gotten so far from certain quarters and from certain personalities and from certain people should have been like absolutely expected. Like I remember going to the CPAC um, conference in Sydney, the Conservative political conference in Sydney in October last year. And it was, um, I was actually surprised then at how much that that dealt or dwelt on the voice. And it was 
exactly the people that are running this campaign now. It's Warren, it was Warren Mundine, it was Jacinda Price, um, Tony Abbott was speaking about The Voice, there was all the assorted Sky News After Dark folks that have been very virulently against it at this point, and they were saying exactly the same stuff that they're saying now. Mm-hmm. So I think if the government was surprised by it, they shouldn't have been, but I don't think they were. Um, the Albanese especially sort of changed his rhetoric and I think Paul you mentioned this yesterday in a chat that we were having like you know he's stopped saying pointing to the 300 page Karma Langton report and saying I'll read the report because of some very fair points that have been raised that the government hasn't you know adopted that report they haven't adopted which parts they back from it and all these sort of things and it's also 300 pages so if you're someone out in you know have a go get a go land out in western Sydney who's going to decide this election, you're not going to read the 300 page Carmel Langton report. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's a fair enough point to say to journalists and that, but it's I don't think that's really helping anyone who's going to help decide this referendum. Um, and, you know, they're, they're trying out different sort of formulations of words around, you know, it's it's the polite thing to do and it's just good manners and, and all these sort of things. So I think they're still kind of figuring out exactly what's going to hit and what's not hitting. Um, but, yeah, I think I think the part that was unexpected was how heavily the, the opposition came out early in the year and Albanese had a couple of tough interviews on 2GB and what have you. Um, and I think that has led to them sharpening up, I think, their, mm. their talk on this. When when I was canvassing views about this in January when Dutton was on, on the campaign of, of subtly attacking it by demanding details, uh, the things that um, Labor people pointed to in order to say, hey, don't panic here, is like, one, it's extremely far out mm. from the referendum, um, so there's time to sharpen the message about where is the detail, um, you know, Dutton's line might become tiresome and, like, be a bigger drag on his own popularity than on the actual um, yes vote for the voice. And the other thing people t- mentioned is a sort of passing of the baton from the Prime Minister and, and Linda Burney uh, onto the actual yes the campaign camp- when yeah. it's not politicians having to front it uh, so so often, um, but, you know, c- community leaders and, you know, uh, you know, rather than just the PM and Linda Burney. Despite me totally mangling Joel's question, sorry, Joel, the, the really interesting sting in the question is in the tail. Could the Prime Minister be doing a disservice to reconciliation by basically having this fight, by uh, by not waiting the 3,000 centuries it would take mm. in order to uh, get bipartisan support for this, etc. Like the, the stakes are, you know, dreadful cliche, but the stakes are high. I did actually, in a conversation on the pod at the beginning of the year with the PM, ask him deliberately, if you think that the refer- referendum will fail, will you delay it? Because it obviously the stakes of a no vote are very... Well, you don't really want to contemplate them. So what what, what are thoughts the, about that? It gives the opposition an effective veto, though. If you wait for bipartisan support, they can just refuse to give it and it gets pushed to the never-never. Mm. Well, so, and and he, is, well, he is making the big, you know, hand across the aisle gesture at the moment on the wording. I think that there, there, there's more to come. He sort of flagged that there might be some bipartisanship on the wording. Um, you know, they've brought back the pamphlet that the Liberals wanted, um, you know, that it doesn't seem to be budging on the proper funding for for the various campaigns, but you know there is that sort of effort. And but as Paul says, like you know, if, if it's just going to be, we can't progress the referendum unless the Liberal Party say yes. I think it's never mm. going to happen. The mm. History of social progress in the world is it's hard, and 
you know, there's never going to be people all on board for it. So you have to have the battles sometimes. Mm. Okay. Uh, Amy, you're up, Dales. So uh, there seems to be lots of folks out there uh, who think that the robo-debt Royal Commission isn't getting much coverage, um, and that is somewhat surprising news to us uh, given that we certainly have been covering it extensively. And I just want to give a shout out to two of our colleagues, uh, Chris Norse and Luke Henri Case Gomes. Uh, but anyway, um, Amy, a couple of uh, specific questions. The RoboDebt Royal Commission has revealed a widespread government culture of treating welfare recipients as en- enemies to be punished. Is Labor adapting to this culture or are there signs of that culture being replaced with a rights-based approach? So that's one thing. We'll stick a pin in that. The second one is, uh, does the Royal Commission into RoboDebt provide evidence that our politicians are immune from accountability because their specific decisions are carried out by others to whom the blame is subsequently sheeted? And by that, you know, we mean officials. Uh, And, you know, to what extent do recent investigations or revelations reveal that ministerial staff, so this is political staff, are laws unto themselves? Uh, You know, obviously there's a lot of concern out there in the community, and rightly so, uh, with the revelations in this process. So what's what's your response to a couple of those Uh, points? Well, to the first question about, you know, whether it's changed anything on how we demonise welfare uh, recipients, probably not in the main because it's always very, very easy to demonise those on welfare. And when we say demonise those on welfare, we mostly mean people on unemployment benefits. And that is something that this country has done for decades and decades. Like Dole Bludger is a very, very easy tabloid headline. Uh, and we know through this process that that uh, prejudice was uh, deployed and weaponized by the government as they were trying to avoid accountability for this during the robo-debt process. Uh, and while the language might be a, a little nice given that we have a, a more progressive government than than the last uh, few governments that we've had. We're not seeing rises in uh, job seeker or things like that because, again, it's very easy to tell people, well, we're not going, we can't afford this. And I think Australians are fairly conditioned to saying, oh, no, we, we can't afford this. So that I don't think there's been a huge shift. Having said that, Bill Shorten is doing what he can uh, for political reasons, uh, but I think also he has been genuinely touched by some of what he's hearing to raise the issues with how recipients were treated during this process. Uh, And from what I'm hearing from people in Services Australia, there is being a cultural change to remember that these people are humans and they're struggling and they don't, they should not ever be treated as a number. They need to be treated with compassion and kindness and to try and find solutions for their individual situations. Mm, I would hope a sort of major thing coming out of this process is that if officials think that a scheme that they are administering <laughs> administering is illegal, uh, that they might actually... Uh, put put fo- your hand up or something. Well, yeah, put hey, your hand up. Well, uh, I've got an idea here. You know? But apparently stick. opinions are just opinions and everyone has them. And the senior ranks of the public service and the ministers involved don't come out looking very well. But unfortunately, because it's it's not just one person ordering something, it's it's like the responsibility here was so shared that it's it's going to be hard to Which find goes sort of to, one. Well, sort of it goes maker. to Tim Turner's point in terms of that, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm validating you, mm. not not hushing you away mm. from the microphone, oh, Daniel. Like, you know, in Japan, like... there's a great phrase called sontaku, which means there's no direct instruction from a minister to their subordinates to say do this, but the, the subordinates sniff the political breeze and know what the 
what the political master wants. And it was very clear that the then government wanted budget savings and to go after dull bludgers, yeah, quote yeah, unquote. Yeah, yeah wow. and it was it was in the context of a Senate uh, that they were having difficulty getting cuts through. So you didn't need a, a staffer or, or the or the minister reducing to writing. Could we do it without legislation, please? It was something that the department knew that they knew that they wanted. Yeah, exactly. And it's and listeners are right to be very focused on this because the case study associated with this is very alarming. And I'll just say again, in case we've all forgotten, it's not just robo-debt. This issue was raised also in the administration of sports grants, whether or not that there was a lawful authority to do this. So it's, you know, anyway, it's really problematic just at a number of levels. Show some courage, public service. Well, it's sort of, yeah, what, what it's sort of, yeah. Anyway, there, we could do a whole show on robo-debt. But anyway, look, I hope we've responded uh, to the many, uh, the, the amount of incoming that we got on this point uh, for this particular episode. Daniel, you are up from Frank. Our neighbours to the north have no problem coexisting with China and do not view China as a threat to their way of life. Many are closer neighbours to China than Australia. So why is Australia so concerned when hardly of any of our neighbours are, including India, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc.? Uh, it's certainly true, Frank, that a lot of those countries are certainly in the dialogue track. They want to sort of keep talking to China. I probably would take issue slightly with that characterisation. No problem coexisting. Um, India has had for the last few years the deadly border clashes. Well, in 2020, there was the deadly border clash in the Himalayas. There's that ongoing territorial dispute about where that line is. Um, uh, there's also India has moved to ban Huawei, or not so much explicitly ban Huawei, but not include Huawei in the 5G rollout like Australia. Um, and they've also moved to ban uh, a bunch of Chinese apps, including TikTok. Um, so, it, And there's a sort of shift in public sentiment in India as well. Late last year, there was a poll, which country represents the biggest military threat to India? 43% said China, 22% the US. And then Pakistan, 13%. So much further down the list, which is very interesting. It is the history interesting. There. Yeah. So just uh, just adding, injecting that into the discussion slightly. Um, Indonesia, um, certainly, again, with Malaysia, was saying that they were worried about AUKUS contributing to a regional arms race. Um, but Indonesia also has a territorial dispute or has issues with China claiming vast swathes of the South China Sea. Um, when they were in Canberra, Earlier this month, uh, the Indonesian foreign and defence ministers joined the Australian ministers in expressing serious concerns about developments in the South China Sea and the militarisation of disputed features. That means China. So I'm just adding that to the discussion. Um, and I'd say that, you know, under the Morrison government, there certainly was uh, a, a portrayal of the Australian government's position as being very uh, anti-China uh, and very military focused. Um, the new government, the Albanese government, has been very focused on on sticking with AUKUS, but adding that, you know, really reinforcing that diplomatic dimension and um, pursuing um, lines of communication with China as as a sort of safeguard against things spiralling out of control. Mm. So I think I think there definitely is now a more of an awareness in Canberra of not awareness, but um, explicit sort of talking about keeping that line of communication open, stabilising the relationship, managing those differences wisely, as they say, um, uh, but I'm not sure that there's, you know, everybody in the region is necessarily totally 
um, you know, on board with everything China is doing totally as it relaxed. rises in power. <laughs> yes. Relaxed and comfortable. I think that's a very good summary. Uh, Paul, you are returning to the microphone now from a question from Daniel, not our Daniel, another one, uh, who is noting by way of preamble that we've seen another senator defect from their party post-election. Uh, so he's referring, Daniel is referring in this instance to Lydia Thorpe, who is no longer sitting in the Greens party room and is now sitting on the crossbench in the Senate. Uh, Daniel notes that Thorpe is not up for re-election until 2028, 2028, despite being elected as a Green, with a majority of uh, her votes being for the party and not the candidate. Uh, so the question is, do you think Parliament should consider changes to senatorial terms to discourage these sorts of defections? Well, first of all, we'll it's, all have big it's thoughts very about this, legally I think. difficult because <laughs> in the Constitution and the Electoral Act, it's the it's the individuals that get elected, not the not the parties, mm. uh, and and that is what allows disaffected, uh, you know, MPs or senators who are not getting on with their parties or, or perhaps had had other plans to you know start their own movement, like you know Cory Bernardi, uh, conservatives. Uh, it, it allows it allows them to do that because. There's no way to there's no way to eject them out of out of parliament, um, uh, just because they've been unfaithful to to the party whose ticket they ran on, mm. um, and you can't you can't cut their terms short. You can't do any of that without a, a referendum to to fundamentally change change the constitution. Um, and I can understand why people are annoyed uh, that it happens, and you know, Greens party members that campaigned for. for for Senator, still Senator Thorpe, I, I can understand why people people are annoyed about that. But you can't you can't do much about it without changing the entire system. Anyone else got capital T thoughts on this apart from capital L law and capital C constitution? <laughs> I think that's a fair point. And, and there's a, there's a, there was an uh, analysis article. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, so someone will probably tell me on Twitter after this, but um, the, the sort of the flip side of what Paul was talking about, like say, for instance, there's a senator who sort of starts going against their party line or whatever and the party, you know, boots them out of the party, you're no longer a member of the Liberals or the Greens or whatever, does then that person have to quit the parliament because they've, you know, lost popularity contest in their party because they're standing up for their views and that sort of thing? I mean, like they're, it's sort of like a slippery slope and I sort of realise that it's not, maybe an ideal option if you're someone who, and it, this is the thing too, like this is not a new thing, this happens semi-regularly yes. like this is not some new thing where Lydia Thorpe has gone out and done this you know incredibly controversial thing that no one's ever done in the history of Australian parliament this happens once or twice or three times every every parliament um so like there are you know it is imperfect but like it's probably what you know, the least imperfect of all the imperfect options but mm -hmm. also i mean parties know who they're pre-selecting yeah. and they know what their beliefs are and they know what their hard lines are. And so if the part, the political party starts drifting away from those beliefs or those hard lines or, you know, compromising in a way that, you know, that person that they have pre-selected wouldn't personally compromise on, then what do we expect to happen? Are they to sit up and, you know, shut up and because they want to stay within the protective barriers of the party? And 
the flip side of this is that outside of Jackie Lambie, it's been really hard for senators who have left an established political party to be re-elected as an independent because mm. they don't have the party machine money behind mm. them anymore for their re-election. In the case of Jackie Lambie, she obviously had the support of the Tasmanian constituents and Lydia Thorpe may very well prove to have this enough support of Victorian constituents because of the positions that she's taken. So I think we need to have some party responsibility in this as well, because if we just want our elected officials, whether you agree with them or not, to sit up and shut up because that's the party line, then who are we actually electing? Mm. Well, on on Lambie uh, and party support, that reminds me also that the party that suffered the most defections was Clive Palmer's United Party uh, after he lost after he lost all of his senators except for Dio Wang. Uh, when he restarted the United Australia Party, he tried to stop these defections by writing penalty clauses oh, into, right. into candidate yeah. contracts. Yes. So not the Electoral Act or the Constitution, but your <laughs> contract with with me and and my big party that's funding your election. (laughs) If you get elected, you'll have to pay me, you know, a squillion dollars. Uh, But, you know, I don't think think courts have ever ever enforced that. It's just something to... Is that capital E enforceable? It's just just something to to scare uh, the people that you recruit to man polling booths and to to be candidates in your party. Well, and of course, there was Fraser Anning who quit One Nation the same day he was sworn into the Senate, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Like they'd, they'd fallen out even before he stepped <laughs> into the Senate. I think, too, one, one last thought. I mean, and I realise it's a different house and a different set of rules and that sort of thing, but, like, Andrew G did the same thing a couple of weeks ago and there was yes. there was none of this talk about, like, should we change the rules? And I realise it's different in the House and the Senate and that sort of thing, but, like, Th- they was, elected a national. There was, there was none of this when Andrew G did it, like t- t- a yeah. month before Lydia Thorpe did. Yeah, it's so. interesting, the, the selective nature of the yeah. outrage. Yeah, it's Darren true. Chester, yeah. he it stepped out true. for a second, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And well, well, Craig Loundry yeah. and, yes. yeah. Well, Craig no, no, Kelly. Craig, 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 sorry, yeah, Craig, Craig Kelly. Craig Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Too many Craigs. Too many Craigs. Craigs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> sorry. So, sorry to any Craigs who may be listening with political yeah, no aspirations, but anyway, no offence to any Craigs. Okay, Josh, you're up. Uh, Lou from Lou Cortein. Um, why is there no political will to execute any public health messaging around COVID? I just can't get made around it. It's almost as if uh, it's it's almost as don't look up as our climate response, uh, long-term health impacts clearly terrible for uh, public health and public purse. Um, it's sort of interesting. I think every time I've, we've done one of these, we've had a question like this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I'll probably give the same answer that we've given a few times before. I mean, I, number one, I, I'll sort of dispute in the question that there is no public health messaging. Like, I think obviously it's far less than when we're in the you know emergency pandemic stage when there was no vaccines and the world was falling apart and we we're all in lockdown and it was you know stay home, wash your hands, stay a meter and a half apart, and all these sort of things so we can all go back to the pub. Like it was that was a different stage of the pandemic. And like, let's you know the all the obvious caveats that there are so many people that are still uh, very uh, scared and concerned and for right you know. For chronic illness reasons or disability reasons and all these sort of things, people that whose lives didn't go quite back to normal or maybe still haven't gone back to normal after the pandemic. I think all these all those usual caveats that there this has affected people in different ways and will continue to affect people in different ways. I, I don't really know what else 
there is that we could be doing. I mean, obviously there like there 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 is all these messaging around go get your booster shot, you know, go and get your antivirals if you are eligible for them and and you you want to take them. Um, the question about there is no political why is there no political will? I think. I just don't know what really the the other options are. I mean, there is public health messaging. Vaccines are still free. Antivirals, if you're eligible for them, are you know relatively cheap still. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'm interested in what everyone else thinks about this one. I think yeah, there's certainly the, the thing about the pandemic is that the, it has divided the country as we're now in what year? Are we in year three? We're in year three of the pandemic, right? It's divided the country uh, to uh, between... (laughs) Daniel's just four years. Yeah, well, that's why I was checking because we've we've lost lost our grip on time, you know. It's sort of like I think it, it has divided the country as time has progressed, I think there are people who remain very, very concerned mm. about this still, very, yeah, very, very so, concerned, but... and rightly so, because there are people, a number of people still dying and uh, people who uh, are more compromised or immune compromised and are more at risk. And there are lovely people listening to this show today, I know, who care very deeply about those people and think we should be doing more. Or are those people. Or are those people. But, uh, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, we have quite strong public backlash to uh, the, the strong public health interventions, the lockdowns, uh, you know, all of that side of the ledger, there's still people very stirred up by that. So anyway, I just think all I'm saying is it's hard if you're mm. if you're the politician in the middle of that. It's it, was, hard. it was sort of a, a contract, though, that we're going to ask you to do this extraordinary thing and to be locked down in your, in your homes for months until to flatten the curve and then, you know, the more quasi-elimination that we were doing. I mean, people were happy to do that until we had vaccines and then it's sort of like, well, we've upheld our end of the bargain and 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 then they don't want to do anymore. I mean that's that's yeah. pretty much it. I just, thought, I just don't think people would like, even if there was, you know, lockdowns or wear masks everywhere or, you know, capacity limits at restaurants and that sort of thing, I just don't think people would follow that's, them. Yeah. Like I, mean, I spoke to a number of, you know, social psychologists and and, and you know behavioral uh, you know people like that. No one that I spoke to think that people would just follow them again. Like there yeah. was, as, as Paul said, this this like sort of social contract. You know, you do it until we get to a certain point. And, and you know, I, I was one of the people that was very, you know, very pro following the rules and staying at home and wearing a mask and all this sort of stuff. But it was, I think, with a very defined sort of period of let's do this crazy, incredible, extraordinary thing for a point, and then there's a light at the end of the tunnel sort of thing. Yeah. We're also coming at it from like different views, like we're in this room all very privileged with mostly good health. Mm, exactly, and so yeah. that does change mm. your view of yeah. things, like where you say, yes, it's fine for me to sign this social contract, but there are thousands of people who don't have that privilege and who are still living under lockdown. We're going to the store, trying to catch a bus, all of that mm. is a calculation that they have to make about risk. Yeah. And so it is completely understandable, as Josh and everyone's saying, about how how terrifying this can be and and how frustrating it can be. I will say my friends in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in the US, are noticing a lot more people wearing masks uh, than, you know, and this is obviously in the Northern states, but they're they're seeing a lot more people wearing masks and things as their winter progresses Mm. because people are getting sick. uh, If they're getting COVID for the third or fourth time, they're, they're getting long COVID, getting flus, and so they're starting 
starting to wear masks on planes and mm. things again without being asked by the government. And I think that is probably where we are going to yeah. go. Well, I confess I'm still wearing a mask I on planes. I still wear a mask and on plane and I don't. transport and or, I always. try to wear it yes. in yeah. the shops and things just to, you know, limit, you know, anything that I potentially might yeah. have. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's another reminder too, obviously, that we can all... Um, you know, perhaps those messages could be more frequent than they are. You know, put your mask on yeah. or wear a, that perhaps they perhaps they could be. But I mean, we we all do have agency in these mm-hmm. things. We can all put the bloody mask on. Um, Paul's looking guilty, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway. But, but I think that Amy's point that you make there about like the sort of the voluntary sort of nature of things. I think that we saw it last winter. Like I remember being in a press conference, you know, in, in Parliament House, and Mark Butler, the Health Minister, and Paul Kelly, the Chief Medical Officer, walked in and they were wearing masks. And I think it was in July or June or something like that, like in Australian winter. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. Like I hadn't seen someone wearing a mask in Parliament House for a while, let alone, you know, a minister. Mm. And they, you know, they, they come out to do this sort of, you know, winter's coming, everyone get your latest flu, um, uh, COVID shot sort of thing. And I think we will see that sort of peak and trough sort of thing as it gets to, you know, danger periods or when there are big outbreaks and that sort of thing. But a couple of weeks ago, like, again, like, you know, I think it's the one thing we haven't said is, you know, I can't, don't know the numbers off the top of my head right now, but, you know, more people have died, I think, in the last, in this wave, this current wave or the most recent wave than in basically the whole rest of the pandemic mm-hmm. yes. of, of a multiple more. So it's not just, you know, there's some small number, but there are large numbers of people mm, getting very dying. sick and, and dying. Yep. And I think that's something that we can't sort of get away from. But I think, again, like it's, it's always a sort of balance of if they put rules on, are people going to follow them? Is there any any sort of public health impetus behind it. Um, but I think, you know, as, as Amy said, I think maybe it'll be a thing where, you know, danger periods, the government will say, hey, there's a nasty strain of this going around. Maybe think about doing these things. You know, there will be more messaging in, you know, winter time and when there's waves and that sort of thing. So I think it won't be this blanket, you know, everyone stay at home forever sort of message anymore. It'll be, I think, far more might selective be, at certain times. might be seasonal. And, and also just a reminder, obviously, go and get your bloody boosters mm-hmm. if you haven't had them. Yep. Anyone listening to the show, if you haven't had your boosters, Go and get them. Um, now we're on the clock, kids, so we're going to have to sprint a little bit with some of these questions, Amy, from a reader on a platform currently owned by Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Should Labor's superannuation tax reforms go further, i.e., get rid of no tax in drawdown phase and that way uh, resolve part of the franking cred- credit issue by stealth? Oh my God. <laughs> so the words were said out loud yep. on a platform owned by Elon Musk. Ooh. Um, we were talking about this before the podcast just because of how polarising doing anything around tax reform is and has been since Tony Abbott was was uh, opposition leader and just how effective that no uh, and misleading policy, um, you know, position is. I mean, at the moment they're talking about such a small number of uh, superannuants of changing their tax concession things. I think uh, it's people with balances over $3 million yeah. is is where they're narrowing it down to, which is, I think, about 36,000 of us. Uh, and uh, they're going to save $1 billion a year in, in lost revenue. So when we talk about tax concessions, it's money that the government is foregoing because, you know, the tax isn't as high as it could be. Uh, and yet we're having an argument out in the mainstream media about whether or not the government is coming for your money. And that's over 36,000 people. Mm. So I think if uh, Murph, you're right with what you were saying beforehand. If uh, we go anywhere near franking credits, negative gearing, capital gains tax, uh, we are going to see a blow up of just epic 
proportions. And some of that uh, is just uh, because of, well, actually, no, all of it is just because of political expediency. Mm. And we're going to see uh, the tax expenditure review, uh, the latest report come in uh, in another week or so, which is going to show some eye-watering numbers. Uh, And this is before we get to stage three tax cuts. And this is why we're talking about the NDIS and Medicare and aged care and how we're going to pay for it. But we're not going to move on from this unless the political debate moves on from this binary, all tax changes are bad and election promises are being broken and they're coming after your money versus, oh, maybe we can make a tiny little bit of tinkering. Our our tax system is a mess. And unless somebody actually steps in and goes, we can no longer afford to do this, this country is going to be in a very, very, very seriously bad situation. Well summarised. Daniel. (laughs) From another reader, also on a platform currently owned by Elon Musk, Uh, This question relates to Peter Dutton's strategy of being what I've described uh, as a microwave Tony Abbott. So uh, picking up from Amy's point, uh, how come the the Liberal and National Party regarded as a weakness Labor's calls for national debate in important issues like the voice and superannuation? Uh, this, uh, This person notes that this is how we used to do business in this country was to set big ideas and walk more or less in orderly fashion towards them. So what what do you say to that? I, I, first, I was going to say $1 billion in savings is probably about one-tenth of one nuclear-powered <laughs> So, like, the drain on the budget, the cost the cost thoughts, pressures on the budget. Thoughts uh, and prayers, push... Jim Chalmers, thoughts oh, and there's prayers. There's always money for war, though. <laughs> you never question that. Um, it does seem like there's the, the news cycle and the tolerance for an extended dis- discussion has shrunk, um, you know, from this being floated. I know that's been sort of, there's been a build up to this on the objective of superannuation, but the the Monday was when that objective was released and we had only a couple of days of speculation before options have started to be ruled out, like more sort of narrowly defined, more narrowly defined. So it just does seem there's less tolerance for a debate to run. And if you let it run, you get accused of breaking promises even before the actual policy is announced. Yeah. So it's, it's, look, Dutton is making, is trying to find any political way in that he can. And so he's, you know, he's driven by wanting to win the next election and wanting to take the shine off the government. Uh, and there's a lot of, um, you know, media seems to, um, just in terms of just the structural issues of faster news cycles and less tolerance for nuance, there's there, there seems to be pressure very early on to close off options. Yeah. The only way it stops is if the electorate doesn't buy it. Yeah, well, that is the only way it stops. And it sort of brings back Daniel's points right about, you know, the Dutton's fighting the next federal election, but to sort of... Uh, move towards ending where we started. Obviously, the, the Aston by-election is very much front and, uh, front of mind for Peter Dutton right at the moment, like maximum mayhem. Uh, I just want to acknowledge we're going to do just a couple of fun ones to finish, but I want to acknowledge we got a load of questions also about uh, climate change and the current standoff between Labor and the Greens on the stand, on, on the safeguard mechanism. Um, the quick version I'll just take is, uh, look, one of the most important bit of climate policy uh, mechanics that will come before this parliament. Uh, I think uh, it's up to both the Labor Party and the Greens, uh, given that the coalition 
you know, to, to sort of pick up a theme, has dialled itself out of this process. It is up to both the Labor Party and the Greens to try and come to terms uh, about how to get this uh, a version of this legislation through the parliament. That's all going to play out over the next uh, three weeks. And uh, anyway, it's, I just want to reassure regular listeners this is a subject that we will return to, but we cannot possibly do justice to in the pod today. Uh, so, okay, that's the short version now. The quickies, fun to finish. Anybody can jump in here. Uh, a couple from the Muscoverse once again. Uh, crystal ball gazing. Do, does it, who thinks the next Australian Prime Minister after Albanese will be Labor or Coalition? Go, Labor or Coalition. Who's the next Prime Minister after Albanese? It really depends on how this cost of living crisis plays out, I think, mm. and it's impossible to tell right now. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I think that, that is exactly what I would say. I don't think imminent, but Labor is the next one following a minority parliament result. Mm. Oh. I'm not saying that's, I'm not saying that's the We're next election. <clears throat> I'm not saying times. that's the next election um, uh, sort of prediction, yeah. but uh, that's the data. I'm just floating it out there. <laughs> no. People can come back to this no. in a few years. No, no, if they no. Want. Well, the data Six speaks years, I don't know. amply to that point. <laughs> Amy Paul. and I like no comment and goes like, no, minority <laughs> parliament 2025. <laughs> no, we're not. I didn't say that. I'm saying that structurally, you know, I've said my no, no, detail. No, no, no. no. The, data, the, data, uh, the data would back you up, Daniel. Uh, yeah. I agree, Labor, just because the Teals took so many seats off the Liberals. It's, it's not quite as bad as the DLP, ALP uh, split, but it is a it is Hard a structural impediment to forming government, and you know they I think they want to, a minority government so that people will be upset at the teals and 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 oh we've got to elect real liberals again to get a to, to get a liberal PM because short of that it, it's going to be hard to shake them all loose. The only the only other thing I would add to this and it's and I I actually agree with everybody. Uh, I think it is it does depend on how electric electric cost of living becomes, and uh, I think the the, the electoral data validates Daniel Hurst's point and Paul's point, which is sort of connected. The only other thing I would say just in passing is I, um, you know, I don't think Anthony Albanese will be one of these prime ministers that needs to be in office forever. I'm just saying that. If they can get back in another majority government situation for another term, I would not be at all surprised to see some sort of generational handover in a new term. Just, I'm just talking about the personality of the person currently. Depend on how much Toto likes living. At well, Caribbean. well, of course things can change, uh, but I just, uh, I don't know. That's my gut feeling. Um, okay, so the other little bit of fun was, does anyone see Scott Morrison making any sort of comeback? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Amy's given her answer. I come, um, I come back well, well, I think the sort of oppositionally, the, the, Scott yeah, Morrison. yeah. No, the, the nature of the question, I think, was you know maybe people will think Morrison's better than Dutton. I just can't see that. I think uh, I just don't see how that, that that's ever possible. I think mm. he torched any possibility of that with the multiple ministries disaster. I, I just think people will look back on that man based on that period. Mm. People in his party now, mm. like, you know, electorate, I mean, political parties don't always make decisions on what the electorate mm. thinks, but he's pissed off people in his party with what he did, which I think is probably nixed to that we, idea. We got any dissent down the end? 
No, I think there'll be there'll be generations. Like if, if Peter Dutton absolutely stacks it and does even worse at the next <laughs> election, I think they'll be looking for generational change, not not back to the future. And uh, Scott Morrison's greatest achievements, um, like the initial pandemic response and 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 job keeper keeping people in jobs, are things that he didn't really want to do. He was sort of forced <laughs> by forced by circumstance. State premiers, uh, you know. So I I don't think there's a, a lot of silverware there to show off. Did Scott Morrison write that question? <laughs> From his magical <laughs> mystery Look, I, I, I cannot, I can neither confirm nor deny that Scott Morrison said in that question. Um, yeah, look, I, I agree. It's sort of like the John Howard example would disprove this, of course. If you're just prepared to hang around long enough, uh, you might get another go. Um, but I think... We're just such a long way from the politics that was practised in that era that it's just, yeah, it's the, the you know, the voter response to Scott Morrison at the last elect- election was visceral and I don't, I don't use that word lightly. Yeah, I, think, I think he's just enjoying doing the international lecture circuit as well. Or probably. rewriting history mm. with Scott Morrison. I think, I think Bill Shorten PM is more, is more likely than Scott Morrison. Oh, gosh. Oh. Because the John Howard example shows you can, you know, lo- lose elections and hang around as opposition leader and then become PM yes, maybe. Yes, that's true. It's yes. not, it's not a, No, it's yeah, not PM too. No, no, no. no. Office, that's that's yeah. an important correction. This is, see, this is why I've got the best team in Canberra is that I can rely on them to <laughs> correct my stupidity. Does that make um, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Peacock. Oh, look. <laughs> well, you know, let that roll around in your minds. Anyway, look, thank you, uh, you folks, for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thanks to the production team in Sydney. Miles Martignoni is the EP. Uh, thank you for producing this conversation. Thank you to my stellar, stellar team. Every time I do these episodes, I think to myself, Christ, I'm lucky. And here I am again. Christ, oh, I'm lucky. I think that too. Uh, well, but not all times. Anyway, uh, I'm very, I am very fortunate to be surrounded by such fantastic people. Uh, obviously, we will do these chats as regularly as we can in in the year. I want to build them regularly into the schedule uh, because I know the audience enjoys them. You know where we all are on our social platforms. If you've got ideas, thoughts or feedback about this discussion, we will be back with you uh, next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.